Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. What I'm going to preach on this morning. And my title is simply this, Don't Be a Fool. Don't Be a Fool. You've heard me say before, be careful who you call a fool. Because the Bible defines a fool as one who is void of God. One that is void of God. And so there should never be a time in the Christian household of faith that we call each other as believers, as fools. Okay? So just remember that. And I think about what King David said in Psalms 14, verse 1. Why don't you turn there and we're going to take a look at it so you can see it also because it's going to be the theme of today's sermon. Psalms 14, verse 1. We're going to see what a fool has to say. It says this in Psalms 14.1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And what I really want us to focus on there is this, is that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. And when I started writing this sermon a couple weeks ago, I had plans of getting through verses 18 through 32. And I don't mean to break your heart, but we're only going to get to verse 18. Because verse 18, I have to unload what verse 18 has to say before we go through the rest. Now, I'm going to read through the rest. And and I'm going to ask you this morning that if you are here or you're listening online, uh, first off is this, is if you get upset, don't get upset at me, but get upset at God. Because this is His Word and I'm just going to be faithful to preach it this morning. But if you look at Romans 1, verses 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves to do penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up 
to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. There is a lot there. And I don't know about you, but as I've studied this, as I've read it, it kind of reminds me of the day that we're living in. You know, in the prayer room this morning, Laura prayed that nothing, just like in Ecclesiastes, nothing is new under the sun. Nothing. And I believe that because it's God's Word. Again, these things are not new, but again, I don't know about you, I cannot read that without thinking, this is the world we're living in today. But as I started going back through this this past week, it was really apparent to me that I had to make sure that we understood what verse 18 said, because verse 18 sets up everything else that we're going to look at next week. We need to see what truly the wrath of God is. We need to understand what it means to reveal or or go against God's will, against everything that is holy. We need to understand what ungodliness is compared to unrighteousness because there is a difference. We need to see what it means to suppress the truth. To suppress the truth. We live in a world today that truth is suppressed. Would you agree? I mean, even through COVID and and everything that has happened the last year and coming on six months, seven months, we are finding things out now that are being exposed. Things that were said and things that were mandated that necessarily didn't help you or I. These things are coming to light. We're finding out that this wasn't just something that was passed from animals, but it was something that was actually man-made to be to a point where it infects humans, where it never was supposed to be. Truth is suppressed in the day that we're living in. But what about the truth? Of Jesus Christ. What about the truth in God's Word? Is it being suppressed? I believe so. In fact, I believe that it gets suppressed some Sundays in some churches that the truth is not preached. And I sit back and I wonder and I ask myself, why is that being a teacher, a preacher? Why is God's Word being suppressed? And the only thing I can come up with is this, is that men don't believe the Word of God for what it is. And I think about this portion of Scripture that we're dealing with here. The idea of God's wrath. You know, God's wrath goes against all 
of our wishful thinking. Human nature has a hard time understanding it. In fact, the wrath of God sometimes to some people can be a stumbling block, even to those that call themselves Christians. Listen, there's one thing that I can assure you this morning. It's this, that if you are born again, you are redeemed, you are no longer under the wrath of God. Amen. We should all scream, Amen. But I do want to remind you that your loved ones, your neighbors, everybody, your co-workers, those that don't know Jesus Christ, they are under the wrath of God. And that should move us. That should cause us to be able to pray for our co-workers, to be able to show the light of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ in every way that we can. Because the nature of man wants to ignore the wrath of God. And as believers, we can't ignore it, even though we have been set free from it because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because of His resurrection... But it should still move us. Listen, God still tarries. God still tarries. Say it with me. God still tarries. Do you know why? Because there are still people that are His that have yet come to the knowledge and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And He wants to use us. You've heard me say this before. We are God's Plan A, there is no plan B. You know, as a true believer, we understand that in all circumstances that God is just, that God is sovereign, that God is perfect. There's some preachers that don't want to preach about the wrath of God. There's some churches out there that they want to tell you how to have a better relationship, a better marriage. They want to tell you how to become a better you. There's nothing wrong with those things, but it, there is something wrong when it's apart from God and Jesus Christ. I love the quote, how you can live your best life now. They call this guy the American pastor that actually uses that phrase. In fact, he wrote a book. Live your best life now. And I think to myself, this is my best life now. It would devastate me if I truly believed that because there is so much more that is so much better than this. The truth of the matter is that to all those that are not born again, redeemed, they are under the wrath of a perfect, holy God. Now, how many of you ever heard this phrase, but my God would never do this, or my Jesus would never do this. God would never do this to innocent people. How many of you ever heard that phrase before? And the key word there is my God, my Jesus. It's what they have made Jesus and God into. They have made a God and they have made a Jesus, but it is not God and Jesus of the Word. 
It is not the true and living God that a believer knows. I think about John 3.16, one of the verses that every Christian knows. There's bumper stickers, and I rejoice in that verse. But so often what's overlooked and what you don't hear preachers preach is, is John chapter 3, verse 36. And again, I love this verse. I stand on this verse. It says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen. I believe in Jesus Christ and therefore I have eternal life. But it continues on and it says this, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But the wrath of God remains on him. You know, there's a word that we know that our salvation is faith and grace alone. It's not by works, but we know that the Apostle Paul addresses this. He says this, is if you truly have salvation, the works will be there. That you can't help it. And I think about this phrase because some people will look at this verse and they'll say, well, what do you mean we have to obey? Can't I live my life the way that I want to? Again, I refer you back to what Jesus Christ said. He said that those that love me will keep my commandments. And it's not out of obligation, but it's out of love for Jesus Christ. And again, I say to you this morning, the best thing you can do is fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ every day. If you do that, if you read in the Word and you love the Word of God and you allow the Word of God to do its work and you love Jesus Christ and what He had done for you, which will only cause you to love the Father... Those things that seem to bring the horrible phrase and what people of the world don't like, the idea of obedience, will be delightful. I think about what David said in his relationship with the Lord, that I delight in your law. David wasn't lying about that. It's because he had a relationship with God to the point that he delighted it was easy to fulfill the law of God. So I want to go back to verse 18 and we're going to go through this and we're going to pick it apart. We're going to see what the Greek has to say with some of these words here because it will give us a clear understanding next week as we go through the rest of the verses 19-32. through It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think the first thing we have to do is define that word wrath. What does that word wrath mean? It means a violent, perfect anger. A violent, perfect, perfect anger. This wrath that is listed here in verse 18, it's divine. It comes from God. It's perfect. It's righteous. How many know that God never loses His temper? Amen. I thank the Lord for that too. 
Because there would have been a few thousand times He would have done it in my life so far, in my 52 years. He never loses His temper. Unlike us, our anger is imperfect. Any of you ever lost your patience and get a little angry? Yeah, it happens. It's inside of us. It's the old man. But God never loses His temper. His anger is never imperfect. His wrath is holy. Again, you've all heard somebody say, my Jesus never would. But that is the Jesus that they've made. And that is so dangerous. So dangerous. You can go online and you can read blog post after blog post of people saying that exact thing. My Jesus would never... because they don't know Jesus. Because they don't know the Word of God. God's wrath is not irrational. But, as we see in this definition, it's perfect and it's violent. It's violent. I think about the wrath of Jesus when He cleansed the temple in the beginning and the ending of His ministry. How many would say that that was pretty violent. In fact, at one point it says that he had a whip and he was chasing them out. He overturned tables. But my Jesus would never do anything like that. That's right, because he's made up to what they believe. How about us? Can we have a righteous anger? Definitely, yes. And I'm going to show you, and I I believe this is important that we see this and we understand this today. It says in Ephesians 4, verses 26-27, Ephesians 4, 26-27, listen to this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger And give no opportunity to the devil. Do you actually hear what it's saying? We are given a command right here. This is not an option from the Apostle Paul. He is saying, be angry. Wow. Contrary to some of the things that I've heard before, but he also gives us some instruction here. But do not sin. How many times, many, how many people here, when you get angry, you usually sin? Yeah. We, 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 I was thinking about this because I was going over this sermon and we came here to clean the church Wednesday night. And on the way home, there was a guy, I stopped at Kroger Gas. His gas was actually $3 a gallon. And in that big vehicle I drive, whenever I see gas now the cheapest, I'm stopping. It doesn't matter if I need a buck's worth. Or $70 worth. I'm putting gas in my tank. And I stopped there, and there was a fellow on the side there who was changing his tire, and he was just cussing and swearing, and he was trying to get his tire off. And I listened to this as I was sitting there at the gas pump, and and I gassed up, and I pulled over there, and I could see what the issue was. For one thing, he was turning his last two lug nuts the opposite direction. 
He was going righty-tighty instead of lefty-loosey. He was so worked up. And I pulled over. I lifted up my hatchback. I grabbed my four-way and I said, hey, you need a hand? He was like, yes. He accepted it very quick. And I got down there and he had tightened them up pretty tight. I'm a pretty big guy and I got on that four-way. I was able to get them loose and after I was talking to him, I simply said to him, he says, I can't believe that you stopped and helped me. And I said, well, it's because I serve God, the true and living God. And I'm called to help those. And I said, dude, do you know the Lord? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm saved. And I was thinking to myself, he probably was. <laughs> I don't doubt his salvation. But he was sinning because of the perverseness that was coming out of his mouth. Be angry, but do not sin. And then we see this phrase here, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. We know, or your anger, we know that that actually comes out of Proverbs for you that read Proverbs. And give no opportunity to the devil. Even in unrighteous anger, if we allow it to go to a place that it shouldn't, it will give opportunity to the devil. And that command to be angry just doesn't sound right, does it? most of the time what you listen to or what you've heard or what we've been taught. We find ourselves trying to avoid at times being anger or angry for the right reasons. It's called a righteous anger. I think of things that we can be upset about and angry about. As a pastor teacher, I'll tell you something. I'm very upset at false teachers and those that teach the Word of God wrongly to entrap, to ensnare, to put bondage on people. That angers me. I'm angry because the abortion rate of our country angers me. Critical race theory angers me because it comes right out of the pit of hell. And it angers me because it's made its way into the church. There's pastors in our country today that are probably teaching on it. The idea of coexisting angers me. People chanting that police lives don't matter anger me. There's a lot of things lately in this last year and a half that I've found myself angry at. And what it does, it draws me and causes me to pray. To pray hard. It causes me to realize that I'm not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's causing me to be more passionate to make sure that the truth of God is being preached. making me passionate to dig deeper in my personal time of Bible study that I might not be deceived. But is it okay to have a righteous anger? Yes. I think of different times in Scripture where we see this idea of righteous anger come out. There is an anger that 
it says in James chapter 1, verse 20, that does not achieve righteousness for God. There is that type of anger. That's the one where you're turning your lug nuts the wrong way and you find yourself so angry and so oh, upset. Listen, I, I know what this like. Some of you that know my testimony, I was a very angry young man. Very angry. Here I was preaching in the pulpit and beating people up on the side of the road because they cut me off or swore at me or whistled at my wife. I was such an angry, angry young man. And part of that was is I really didn't know clearly what my identity was in Jesus Christ and who I was. And it's when I came to the place of understanding that fully that my anger seemed to fade. But I think about this righteous anger. I think about God being angry at Moses for his unbelief. Moses resisting God, not obeying Him. That command that God gave him to go go to Egypt and, and confront Pharaoh to insist that He let God's people go. And you can see that in Exodus 4, verse 14. I think about God being angry at that point. I think about God being angered by the mistreatment of those that are helpless and those that are strangers, those that are widows and orphans. We can see that in Exodus 22, 21-24. Think about how angry God got when men turned and started trusting and worshiping other things but Him. You can see that in Exodus 32, verse 10. You can see it in Deuteronomy 6, 14-15. You can see it in Judges 2, 13-14. You can see it in Ezra, verse 22. It's amazing to me how many times that sin, that anger God is in our Bibles. Because you know what? We all tend to worship something, don't we? We all tend to put God not in His rightful place. We all tend to be distracted at times. Lord, help us. I think of times that maybe I just don't understand. I think of one of those such times that's described in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when they're moving the Ark of the Covenant because it might be possibly captured by the Philistines and, and they did not do this correctly. And I think of the poor person that reached out and touched it. Dead. I believe in a perfect God that has perfect wrath, who is holy. And even when I can't wrap my mind around things, I'm assured that everything He does is righteous. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've questioned, why does God do that? Or maybe you've made God into something that He isn't. My God would not do that. 
My God would not punish somebody. I think about how angry God was and later became Moses' His righteous anger when the children of Israel built the golden calf. When they refused to go up and meet with God. It was a righteous anger. I think about Paul who expressed his anger and outrage to the Galatians. Think about Paul's anger and his rebuke towards Peter for the hypocrisy of dealing with Gentiles. See, the wrath of God is perfect. The wrath of God is severe. The wrath of God is deadly. And the only way to escape it is through salvation, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Now, as we continue on, I think I've defined what the wrath of God is there. And again, just to remind you what we said the definition was, it's simply this, a violent, perfect anger. A violent, perfect anger. We must continue on in this verse, and it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men, whom by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the next thing we have to look at is here is, is that term, is revealed. Is revealed. And in the Greek, that word revealed means simply this, to take off the cover. To bring to light, to make known, to make known. Throughout Scripture, time and time again, we've seen, or we have seen how God's wrath is revealed. The first uncovering in Scripture happens in the Garden of Eden. We see life that ends. It's no longer eternal. We see the curse, we see the toil, and we see on and on and on what happened because of sin in the garden and because of God's wrath. Yesterday, Missy and I were picking blackberries. And we were picking them, but where we were picking them, it used to be a farm uh, field that they, they had tons of blackberries in, but it just, for years, just went untended. And we were there, and we were picking off of a trail, and, and, and Missy started before I did because I had some other things that I was doing. And, and uh, when she got all done, she had a pretty big bowl full of blackberries, but she'd say, there's some just outside of my reach, and you have longer arms. So I started leaning over, and the next thing you know, I started walking in because there was just the biggest ones that were just out of touch. And if I were to wear shorts today, you would have said, oh my goodness, what happened to your legs? And I was thinking to myself, every time I scratched my legs and on the ride home where my legs were hurting a little bit and itchy, I was thinking to myself, it was the curse. 
that caused those thorns to be there. And I find myself, and, and I've, I shouldn't say this, but I've often said I'd love to talk to Adam when I get to heaven. The toil that we all go through. Moms, the birth pains when you bared your children. Part of the curse. Part of God's wrath because of sin. We see this throughout Scripture time and time again. We see it in the story of Noah, the days of the flood. For God destroyed all but the eight and the animals that were on that ark. We see God's wrath, His perfect wrath, in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God's wrath in the drowning of Pharaoh's army after God hardened His heart. But the place that we should see it the most is at the cross. For the wrath of God was put upon God's own Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, who without a word took our sin, the world's sin, and bore it fully because of the wrath of God. And that perfect wrath of God brought us life. And life everlasting. It redeemed each and every one of us. So we see this idea of God's wrath revealed. And God's wrath is still revealed today in the unbelievers in our world. And one day, God's wrath is going to be unleashed in a way that you won't want to be here when it happens. So as we continue on here, we see what it means to God's wrath, what it is, and we've seen how God reveals it. I've given you some examples. And as this verse continues on, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, I want you to see something here because this is going to be important going on and working through these other verses. There's two things listed here, ungodliness and unrighteousness. They are two different things. Please don't get them mixed up. You will see things differently than what God intended us to see it. How many know that God's wrath is universal? It's just not here in the United States. It's not just in China. It's universal. It's not just for the rich or for the poor, but it's for everything. It's universal. It's it's throughout the world and throughout time. No amount of goodwill, good deeds, wishful thinking, positive thoughts of being moral will keep you from it. Only Jesus Christ can be your advocate. And this is what we must be sharing to those that God gives us opportunity to share to. They are under the wrath of God. Listen, let me just say this. Most of the books that are out there about how to evangelize, a lot of them are garbage. How many of you remember when Bill Hybels, who is now no longer in the pastor because he's fallen, but how many of you remember his book, Walk Across the Room? Anybody here 
Read that, Jim? I got through like three chapters and threw it in a bonfire. This was about nine years ago when I got it. Somebody told me, you've got to read this. And it was all about getting into somebody else's life first before sharing the Gospel. Oh, I know what Justin likes. Bob Siebert, you know, he, he doesn't know the Lord, but he's a fisherman, so I'm going to fish with him and fish with him and fish with him and fish with him until he sees that I'm fisher of men. Yeah. I know what Rick Valley likes. I'm going to talk about some big dogs. I'm going to get talking about guitars, and even though I might not even know nothing about it. Get to know their hobby. Get to be friends. Listen, that is a, <laughs> such a lie. We are called to evangelize. We are called to bring the law, but also our testimony to men. The law causes us to see that we are not good. The law causes us to see our need for Savior. Next time you evangelize somebody, just simply ask them, are you a good person? And when they tell you yes, walk them through the Ten Commandments and what Jesus had to say about them. And then my brothers here, start with the idea of, have you committed adultery? And when they say, well, no, I haven't. And you say, well, Jesus elevated that. And he actually said, if you look upon a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. Uh, Guilty. How about sharing with them after the fact about what Jesus Christ has done for you and has saved you? From being a lawbreaker, being a sinner. No amount of good, no good deeds, positive thinkings will keep you from the wrath of God. Only Jesus Christ can. We see that Paul uses two words to describe those who suffer this wrath. First, he uses the term ungodly. The word in the Greek here refers to wickedness. It means those that have a lack of reverence for God. Now, over the years, we've gotten the idea of reverence kind of twisted, haven't we? There was a time when I thought that reverence was being quiet, not being, not speaking until you're spoken to. Those are good manners. We were told for years that you had to dress a certain way when you came to church because it would get you closer to God. The New Destiny Quartet. How many enjoyed them last week? Joe, who I've gotten to know, actually I call him a friend now. He said to me, he said, Pastor Dave, next time we come here, please tell Tom we don't have to wear suit coats and ties. So after we're all done, we was helping him load things as everybody left here. And one of them said, Tom, listen, unless you come here at Christmas time, 
possibly Thanksgiving or for a funeral, don't have to wear a suit coat and tie. It's okay just to wear jeans and a shirt and, 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 and uh, it'll be good. And they all chuckled and laughed about it out there. But what is true reverence of God? Seeing God for truly what scriptures and what the Bible says that He is. It's believing it. This idea of the ungodly here that's listed by Paul, also it means to have no devotion, to not worship the true and living God. So that's the ungodly. That's the ungodly. How about this term, the unrighteous? Now this one here, this one is pretty severe. Because this term here, unrighteous, it means this, the one who has has a faulty personal relationship with God and a false worship. Woo. Kind of puts a different light on things, don't it? Ungodly is the person that has no reverence. They have no idea who God is. They're the ones that David quoted from in Psalms 14.1 that said, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But this unrighteous person is the one who has a faulty personal relationship with God and has a false worship. Wow. Paul's talking to two different groups of people here. In Jude 1, verse 15, it says this, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and the ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of him of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now we see here Jude is warning against ungodly, those that don't even understand God, acknowledge God. And the book of Jude, how many have realized that most of that is talking about false teachers? that are going to be coming into the church. is very prophetic for our day. Again, nothing is new under the sun, but it was very prophetic for the day that we're living in today, the end times. It's part of our, you could say, eschatology. That there's going to be those that come into the church that don't even know God. And they're going to try to lead people astray. Jude spends a great deal of effort explaining how dangerous false teachers are. I think about in verse 12, he actually refers to them. And some of you are taking notes and say, well, what chapter in Jude? Most of you know there's just one chapter in Jude, right? But in verse 12, he refers to them as hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. You know what Paul was talking about there, don't you? Shipwreck. Reefs. Hidden reefs cause shipwrecks. You know, we went to Whitefish Point on vacation and we stopped at the Shipwreck Museum. How many have ever been there? It was just incredibly incredible for me to read all the shipwrecks that had happened, all the lives that were lost before 1938. You know why that was? Almost 95% of them because they collided. It was before radar. 
So most of the time, these ships were sinking because they were hitting each other. In our waters here, we really don't have to worry about reefs. We have to worry about sandbars, things like that. But Paul is saying these ungodly teachers, they're like reefs. How many of you would say, especially with the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you, it's easy to detect false teachers? It is, right? I'll give you an example. Bill Johnson out of Redding, California. It's easy to spot that he's a false teacher. All you have to do is look at his statement of faith, and it tells you that they believe that Jesus Christ was Son of Man. There was just a man, not the Son of God and man at the same time. We believe here and we teach here because the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he was on earth, he was the Son of God and man. There's a hundred other things wrong with their theology. There's other things wrong in their statement of faith that goes contrary to the Word of God. They are easy to spot. But how about teachers that might not be ungodly, but unrighteous? Some of you here, maybe you've never heard of the ministry called Man in the Mirror. I know the guy that runs the ministry, Man in the Mirror. It's a ministry to help men that are caught up in sexual addiction. And the man that was in charge and still in charge of Man in the Mirror is a man that is redeemed. He was redeemed in prison. But let me tell you about the man behind the man in the mirror. It was in the Middle Ages where in this area there was no such thing as mega churches. In fact, he had one of the first mega churches in the suburbs of Detroit. People were being saved. People were being baptized. The church was growing. He was at about 1,100 people. He'd take the ministry over for his father. Grew up as a pastor's son had seen what his father had endured, had seen how people at times treat people in ministry wrong, sometimes just brutal. Took it very personal. He took over his father's church, went to Bible school, because that's what he was told he should do. He grew this church, and the church grew. During the whole time that he was pastor there, you know what he was doing? He had robbed seven banks. Came very proficient. He actually said he was good at it. You know why he was robbing those banks? Was to support his sexual addiction. And at that time, wasn't just available on a smartphone or on a computer, but I don't need to go any deeper into that. And here the church was booming and one day he was sitting in his office and he got a call from the secretary up front on their office phone and said, the FBI is here. And he said he had the thought, if I had a back door to my office, I would have ran. If there was a window big enough, I would have went through it. And he ended up being arrested. Jailed. But that's where he was redeemed. 
That's where he was born again, saved. His wife, their marriage was restored. And today he runs a ministry to help men, but his conversion came in prison. He had preached many a times from the pulpit. Some things very misleading. Listen, we are we're we're entering a day and we're in a day. I'm not convinced because I've shared this statistic with you. Forty five percent of the church they say is not coming back. I'm not convinced that all forty five percent of those people are people that are not hungry for God. But maybe they just can't find a church. Maybe because the church has become compromised. Maybe there's men out there that don't really know God. You know, I, something was something was just this last week. I'll tell you, I, I, I listened to something that just really, really disturbed me and grieved my heart. Even had a hard time sleeping. That there's a lot of pastors out there that are having people write their sermons for them. Any of you heard what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention this past week? Past couple weeks? The president getting put up on charges for plagiarism? Of course, if you've paid any attention to it, and I do because this is my world that I navigate through, there's been so many sexual misconduct charges brought against them previous. And now... They just voted in to adopt critical race teaching in their churches. Let me say something. I've never been Southern Baptist, but I've appreciated my brothers who have been because they stand for the Word. They've stood firm on things over the years. They are the biggest denomination in the United States. And false teachers and teachings have entered their doors. When I read these verses here that Jude penned, I can't help but think of those that are unrighteous who are spreading false teachers. I've had an opportunity to talk to some of you that are new that have come to the church. And I'll tell you what, never before have I heard things, and this has been the last year and a half, people that have come to this church, and they'll say things like this, Hey, I can't believe, I, I can't believe that you're using Scriptures. It's so good to hear the Word of God being read from the pulpit. And about a year and a half ago, I'm sitting there saying, well, what in the world are they hearing? And more people would come and visit. Not all of them would stay. And I would hear the same thing every time. It's, it's so good to hear the Word of God being taught. And I'd say to them, so you haven't been to church in a long time? Well, no, I just left the church. Listen, I applaud each and every one of you that have left a church because of false teaching. I applaud you 
if you're watching online and maybe you're just gun-shy of church, there are churches and there are teachers and there are pastors and preachers that are preaching the truth. I'm committed here to be faithful to God. I've said this, and some of you that have been members here forever, you know how I feel about this. I am more fearful of God than you. All you can do is take my position away. But what can God do? Take my life. Understand that I'm doubly accounted and accountable for what is preached and taught here. I've been told before, you're unloving. My Jesus wouldn't do that. I can't believe you talked about, listen, we are not going to be able to navigate through these next two verses without talking about homosexuality. It's going to be in your face. It, it is a sin just like any other sin that will take you directly to hell. I appreciate each and every one of you that stay here. Some of you that have done this journey, I'll never forget, when we started this journey, some of you were with us, right? Boy, it seems like Pastor David has decreased the church over the years, hasn't he? I'll never forget the first time I taught on homosexuality. I'll never forget when I taught messages like biblically correct or politically correct. And there would be an exit. Sometimes a mass exit. I remember one time a mass exit happening when I talked about discernment. In the body of Christ. I am grateful for you that are still willing to come here and listen to somebody preach for an hour and five minutes. Because you know what the world is telling me? You've got to get it down to 30 minutes. You've got to have some great illustrations. You've got to throw a joke in there too. You've got to entertain. And if you keep them too long, they'll lose People, they're they're so feeble. They can't hold on to what you're going to say. Hogwash. But you can go to a movie for two hours and retain everything and talk about it for weeks. You guys are a blessing. So we see this idea of what God refers to as ungodliness and unrighteousness. Listen, unrighteousness, I think, is probably the worst that we're seeing in the church today. I mean, church as a whole. Those that seem like they have some form of righteousness, but in everything they do, they have a faulty personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they have false worship. It says this as we continue on, and I'm going to finish up here. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it's not the ungodly, but the unrighteousness he's talking about here. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that word there, suppress, mean? In the Greek it means this, to hold down, to withhold. 
Listen, when we do baptisms here the first Sunday of September, I'm not going to suppress you. It's going to be in the water and out of the water. I was joking around with Colton this morning, and I said, I might just hold you under just a little longer. I was just joking. Michelle, please convey that. But suppress means to hold down, to withhold. How do we do this? Our old nature, our old man, it's always by this. We've always been told, and this is the worst statement I've ever heard, go by your gut. You've got a gut feeling. Go by it. No. <laughs> now listen, God is giving you wisdom. He gives you discernment. That is different. But that term going by your gut is going by what you know. We're told that. Go by your gut. We're told to cave to peer pressure. We know, and our old man knows this, and we can see it in the world, that it's easier to follow sin than it is to follow God. We are not naturally inclined to follow God. In John 3, and I'm going to look at this time, verses 19 through 20. John 3, 19 through 20 says this, And this is the judgment, wrath. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. I love this verse, even though often it's skipped over. I love that in the light, the things in me are exposed. I've told you this before, and I mentioned it when we take communion. I actually embrace discipline from the Lord nowadays. There used to be a time I'd run from it. But I know this, that God disciplines those that He loves. He corrects those and gives them clear vision of those that He loves. But it says here that there's going to be some that would rather have darkness than light. There's going to be a day where those things that people think are hidden are going to come to the light. I'm a I'm a fisherman and over the years I've been able to just go buy worms when I go fishing. You can buy them anywhere now, the gas station, Meyer. You just go in, there's a little cooler that says bait. But when I was younger and I had no money, I used to go looking for my bait. And I used to get my dad so upset because I used to overturn big rocks. I used to get pry bars. Next thing you know, and me... My perfect self would never put those things right back where they were. I'd pry everything up. And one thing that you know, and if you've ever done this, when you lift something up, everything under there is in the dark, but as soon as you lift it up, what happens? Everything starts scurrying. I mean, your bait, you're trying, you're going all over the place trying to get your bait because it's just running from the light. 
Nothing in the dark will remain hidden. That's what the Scripture says. I think about those verses in John three nineteen through 20. It's pretty much our definition, isn't it? Before we knew Christ. That we like darkness more than light. Because our works were evil. You know, I think about, again, going back to the verse we started off with in Psalms 14, verses 1, but I'm going to read verse 2 also to you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand who seek after God. I pray that God looks down upon you. I pray that God looks down upon me. And that His words are this. Yes, they're seeking me. Yes, they want to know me. They don't want to have a faulty relationship or make me something that I'm not. That is my prayer for myself and you today. Why don't we stand? Now that we have that verse and we have some understanding about it, we're going to be able to go through and navigate through the rest next week. And yes, I I, I think we're going to get through all of them. But the question I have for you that are here and you that are watching online today is this. Is your relationship with God faulty? I don't want anybody here doubting your salvation. That is not what I'm doing here, okay? But is your relationship with Jesus Christ what it should be? If you are here and you make Jesus into something that He's not, then I'm going to say, listen, you might have to come to a place where you give your life to Him because what you've done, you've set up a false God. If you're sitting here today and you say, well, Jesus, my Jesus would never be angry. My Jesus would never speak out about this or that or this or that. If you made Jesus into something He's not or God into a person that He's not, or God into something. I shouldn't say a person. If you made God into a God that He's not, then you need to repent today. It may even be to a point, maybe you realize now, man, maybe I haven't really even made Him Lord of my life. But maybe you're here today, maybe you've completely misstrewed and you've got your 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 priorities totally messed up and somehow... The Lord in Jesus Christ has ended up on the back burner of your life. No longer in the forefront. Today is the day to get that straight. To put your priorities in order. You know, I think about one of the things that the Lord Jesus God the Father 
gives us. And it's a, it's a well-known psalm. It's Psalms 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me before beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me into the path of righteousness for His namesake, for His glory. I love that. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is a beautiful beautiful psalm and often we don't hear it read unless it's at a funeral but if Jesus Christ is forefront in your life you will have no need there will be no want you will have peace as he leads you beside still waters your soul will be restored as you delight in being led in those paths of righteousness for His glory. And when you walk through darkness and even the shadow of death, there will be no fear because God is with you. And God is preparing a place for us now. I love that idea of my apartment in heaven. He's given us everything we need even when we're surrounded by our enemies. David writes this, My cup runs over. Truly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this morning as I pray, if you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you say, Yes, I haven't put Jesus in his rightful place. I've made God into something that he's not. Or maybe you're here today and maybe you've found yourself so angry. And maybe it's not a righteous anger. Listen, a righteous anger is not something that's going to consume you, but it's going to cause you to get to your knees. It's going to cause you to speak about things that are true, but it's not going to be something that controls you in fits of anger. But maybe you're here today like I was years ago and you find yourself just so angry at everything. Again, because Jesus has been put in the wrongful place, it's just time to put priorities in order. So if that's you this morning, I want you to simply, as I'm praying, just say, Father, forgive me. Father, I repent and I turn from my anger and I turn to you. God, I repent for making you something that you're not. So, Father, we just come before you. Lord, I am so grateful and thankful, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And the reason that they are is because you knew that we would need them. 
Sing of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And Lord, that is our human default. We want to do our own thing. Father, I just ask, Lord, you just give us a heart as you gave David as he penned these words. My cup runneth over. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you cause us, Lord, to be used for righteousness, for your namesake, for your glory. God, I pray, Lord, as we leave this place, Lord, that we understand that everyone that does not have personal relationship with you, that have made you Lord and Savior, that has been born again, is under your wrath. And God caused that to move us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray today, Lord, I think of those teachers, those leaders out there that are falsely leading people. Lord, cause us to pray for them. If there's anybody here that's been used or abused because of false teaching, God, I pray, Lord, that you give them a heart to do what Jesus said to do, is pray for those that deceitfully use you. So, Father, we thank you today for the gift of your word. Lord, let it find its spot in our hearts. Lord, cause us, Lord, to come to a place of surrender, Lord, that we might be used by you. So, Father, I just thank you today. Just go with us, keep us, Lord, until we return. Lord, cause us, Lord, to find ourselves in you. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.